This KJZZ podcast series is supported by AARP Arizona, keeping Phoenix in motion with events to get out and do more things with your friends and family. Discover all the real possibilities here in the community on Facebook at AARP Arizona or aarp.org slash phoenix. This is the Recovering Caregiver Podcast. I'm Kathy Ritchie. I spent several years taking care of my own mom who had frontotemporal degeneration, a lesser known type of dementia. Her disease could manifest in the most excruciating ways. Behaviors like apathy, making inappropriate comments, or loss of inhibition are some of the hallmarks of FTD. So is loss of language. My mother eventually lost everything. She was no longer in control of herself. Her gray matter was being attacked, and there was nothing I could do. Then, eight years after she started to change, she fell out of bed. That was the beginning of the end for her. It would be another two long, painful years before she died. There was a funeral. Friends and family came to say goodbye. Then, nothing. Everyone went back to their lives, and I was left to figure out mine. This is Life After Dementia and I'm a recovering caregiver. In this episode, we'll talk about what it's like to be with a person as they begin the dying process and life after. And trust me, it's weird. I met Debbie Thelwell six or seven years ago at a support group for frontotemporal degeneration. I liked Debbie immediately. She was funny, well-spoken. I didn't realize it at the time, but we would always be connected through her husband, Alan, ironically enough. Debbie met Alan when she was 19. He was her first love. They married a year later, had two sons, moved to America, and then in 2007, Alan began to change. He was only 52. I met Alan, well, you'll hear about that in a minute. For me, the support group was a source of great comfort, a place where I could cry and vent about how my life and my mother's life was unraveling. I remember first seeing you. We didn't really meet because it was in a support group and we were sitting at square, a square group of tables and you were on the far side of it. And I remember thinking when you spoke, well, you didn't speak for quite a while. You were listening a lot. And then when you did speak, I remember thinking how articulate and intense you were because you were obviously in the middle of this horrible crisis at the time. That was the first time we kind of came into contact with one another. I remember meeting your husband before I met you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because I, I, my, my memory, and I don't know if this is, I feel like this is an accurate memory of him, is that he came up to me at the facility where my mother was living at the time. And as you recall, it was sort of like, a, it was formerly a motel, wasn't it? Another square. Another square. How strange. <laughs> and they were walking, pacing, as they mm-hmm. do. And he came up to me, and I, I feel like he came up and kissed my hand. And I was like, well, this is a charming Englishman. <laughs> but Alan wasn't always like that. He could also be impetuous, as she puts it. But that's what Debbie loved about him. Unfortunately, FTD has a way of magnifying, or maybe exacerbating, is a better word, those defects of character. And he was quick to anger, but he was quick to forgive in his previous life. And 
the FTD just made him so frustrated and I think it was because he couldn't express himself any other way because he couldn't talk he couldn't really understand what you said and so I, li I always used to liken it to living in a foreign country where you didn't understand the language and nobody could understand you and that's extremely frustrating and that came out with him in the form of physical anger anger that I saw firsthand at the facility where both Alan and my mother lived I remember once sitting with my mother, watching Alan pace up and down while slapping what looked like a leather belt in his hand, clearly frustrated and fuming. His stay there was short-lived. He was eventually asked to leave. Not an uncommon request. My mother was asked to leave two facilities and a group home. For Alan, these moves also meant a stint at a psychiatric facility. Which, and if anybody's ever been inside one of those places, is a... One flew over the cuckoo's nest was not an exaggeration. The residential stays were punctuated by psychiatric evaluations for medication changes and so on. So the last facility he was in, he went in in the beginning of June and he died the following September. But by the time he went there, he was so his dementia was so advanced that he was beginning to be not be able to swallow correctly and so he lost weight. He was still pacing. He lost a lot of weight because he couldn't eat very well. He had pureed foods and so on, which he didn't like. Then Debbie got it. And she said, well, you know that we're kind of going into the last days because he can't drink. He can't even swallow any fluids anymore. So I said, yes, I understand that. Debbie, her sons, Adam and Chris, and Alan's brother, David, came together and... And... Basically, we sat with him the whole weekend and we laughed and made jokes and made fun of him and made fun of ourselves and talked about stupid stuff from years ago. So by the time we got to the day, we were all pretty ready for it in a way. Of course, it was sad and it was horrible to lose him, but we talked our way through it for three days. That's the thing about dying. It can take days weeks even. And that time from when you get the call to when the person passes can be emotionally excruciating. And I sat in the chair and sat there and sat there, changed position, kind of like one of those movies where you see it's filmed over a long period of time and they show you like quick shots of people in different positions. That was me. I was on one side of the bed with my head on the bed and the other side and you know, I had the sounds of the ocean playing in the background, and then I had to go outside at some point because I was just so. I don't, I don't, I don't know. It just, I just wanted it to be over, really. And I went outside into this yard that they had, so they could take people outside, and just screamed, like, "Please make it stop! It's enough already. We've all had enough. Please make it stop." And I'm not a religious person in any way. And I, you know, took some deep breaths, went back inside and sat there for the rest of the night, just stiff from sitting and, you know, he never moved the whole time. He was kind of already gone by then. But he wasn't. That morning, one of Debbie's sons left to take a quick shower. Then a call came in from England. It was Alan's sister. Debbie put the phone up to his ear. And then at 10.05, he took his last breath. And right at 10.06, Adam walked back into the room, which was okay. 
It's funny how all those things are so clear in my mind and it's like five and a half years later. What did you do afterwards? Well, we sat there and we're just like, hey, well, you feel kind of loss is an obvious word to use, but you feel like, okay, well, what do we do now? You know, what do we do now? We've been waiting for this day to come and somewhat praying for this day to come because we wanted it to be over and he would have wanted it to be over. And when it was over, then it was like, all right, well, what do we do now? David and the boys said their goodbyes and they went, they all went outside and left me by myself. And I said my goodbyes and uh, still couldn't really believe that that was going to be the last time I would ever see him, it, you know, as a whole person and left him. And I, I had that horrible feeling that I left him there. I remember that as well because you don't quite believe it yeah. and I didn't believe it I mean I think I made the nurse just double or triple or quadruple <laughs> check <laughs> because I couldn't quite believe that it finally that time had finally come Yeah. because to your point you really you want it to be over with because it's such a slog it's such a long time watching it's this painful. person it's so mm -hmm. painful I'm still processing it, and that's why I wanted to do this podcast. But going back to, you know, the day my mom died, I, I vividly remember just sitting there, shocked that it had actually mm -hmm. happened. And then sort of sitting on the floor by her bed. And I didn't want to leave because right. what were they going to do? What were you going to do with her? What are you doing with my mom? I eventually peeled myself from the floor and left. It wasn't for the last time. That would be way too dramatic. She still had stuff, which I later collected. My heart wasn't any more broken than it was the day before, probably because I had spent nearly a decade grieving. FTD not only ravaged her gray matter, it had broken her body. Those last two years of her life were brutal. Before her fall, she was taking two or three medications, including at least one antipsychotic. Pretty typical. After her fall and a bout of pneumonia, it was downhill from there. She never left her bed. Every decision involving my mother's care was agonizing. I often felt like I was choosing between horrible and terrible. So planning her funeral really was the easy part. But our story, Debbie's story, doesn't end with a funeral or the scattering of ashes. And now it's like, okay, what do I do? What do I do with myself? Yeah. I have all this time. And I, as I say, I was a bit manic. And I went and learned how to scuba dive and went and became a Zumba instructor. And I was out every night of the week I could. And it's probably because I didn't want to be home by myself. Because I hadn't been by myself <laughs> really ever. And you, and you wrote a book. I did write a book, yes. And I, and I spent the first two years doing that. It was another manic thing. And as you know, I'm trying to get some, I'm trying to write another book, but now I have to try and do it. I didn't have to try and do that one because I had all my journals and so on from the, the I hate to call it the journey, but that's what it people understand. I had everything, I'd written notes on scraps of paper and I pulled all of that together and for two years, I didn't watch TV. I mean, I did all this other manic stuff, but 
I would come home every night from work and I would just write. I actually don't remember much of what I did. I mean, I, again, I had a baby, so I, I feel right. like You're I was busy. <laughs> I was. I don't remember. I think that one of the first things I did was hold a fundraiser for <laughs> the, our dinner that we occasionally right, do. Right. And um, so, I mean, I did manage to keep myself busy and keep my foot in that world for whatever reason. And I don't know if that's healthy. Um, I still have a foot in the world now. And I keep trying. I think we talked about this before. I keep trying to take my foot out. <laughs> and something always pulls me back. And maybe I'm just meant to always be connected to FTD. I don't know. Do you remember Alan before FTD? I do. I do. Obviously, we had a long time together before the symptoms really became apparent. I have a before and after picture, which, and it never occurred to me that that's what they were. And they're both on boats, which he loved boats. He's in the first one, he's this kind of carefree, probably in his 30s at that point. And then on the second picture is our kind of last big trip. And we went to see a friend who lived in the Virgin Islands and he had, he lived on a boat. But when I look at it, it's very hard for me to remember the before. And even though, relatively speaking, Alan's FTD adventure was fairly short, those years stick in my mind more than anything else. All of horrible characteristics, it's hard to remember the nice things. And I do remember them, but because they were so long ago, they've kind of faded in my memory, and that's horrible. I hate that. Do you believe in closure? I, I mean, I don't believe in closure. I don't think so. How can you close the door on, on like, your whole life with your mother? She was your mother. You know, how can I close the door on, on my whole life with Alan? I, I, and then people say, well, you don't have to close the door. It's not about that. It's about resolving your feelings. And I, but I feel, I feel pretty resolved. I showed up at work. I'm fine. Exactly. <laughs> I go to work every day. I have, go on vacation. I have friends. I have, you know, grandchildren. I spend time with other people. I think I'm physically healthy. I think I'm mentally healthy. I enjoy my life because I accept it for what it is. It's not the one I thought I was going to have, which is, again, kind of cliched. You know, and the title of the, the podcast is The Recovering Caregiver, and I feel like it's sort of one of those things where you're always in recovery. Yes. And I don't know if that's sort of a play on, you know, individuals who are in physical recovery from addiction or, or what have you, but there is a recovery aspect I feel like to definitely, this process. definitely. Given the longevity, and you're just not accustomed to that length of time to, to watch someone die over years, really, um, and in ways that are just quite gruesome at times and, mm -hmm. you know, frustrating, and it's just hard. It's always there. It's always, it's as if it's a part of your being, really. You can't just walk away from it and have closure. It's, it's commonly called is is you can have closure from the the trauma of the immediate events or of the death itself but the closure from having 
part of your life removed, if you like, like an amputation. It's, it's, to me, that's what it was like. It's, it might sound hokey, but it's, it, it was like an amputation for me. It was like losing physically part of my body. And I don't, if, if something's amputated, you don't get it back. It doesn't grow back. You know, it's... Uh, you adapt. Yeah, exactly. You adapt your life. Just like anybody that's recovering from anything, any like an addiction or, you know, it's always going to be there. You can have some power over it, but it's not going to go away. Next time, we'll talk about ambiguous loss, and you'll meet a recovering caregiver who's taking what he learned and sharing it with others. I'm Kathy Ritchie, and I'm a recovering caregiver. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes at podcast.kjzz.org or on iTunes.